Good afternoon and welcome. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks for being with us. Today we continue our series of conversations with the candidates. My guest is Juan Dominguez, a Democrat, one of 16 announced candidates running for Congress in the 3rd Congressional District. The incumbent, John Sarbanes, will retire from the House of Representatives next January. The 3rd District encompasses Howard County and parts of Anne Arundel and Carroll counties. Juan Dominguez is a senior executive with BreezeLine, an internet provider, and prior to that he worked for Comcast. He's retired from BreezeLine to run full-time. He's a 1989 graduate of the U.S. military at West Point and a combat veteran who led a platoon during the Gulf War. He is a newcomer to Maryland politics, although in the mid-1990s he was elected as a Republican to the Bogota Borough Council in New Jersey. Mr. Dominguez is 56 years old. He is the only Latino candidate in a crowded field. His parents emigrated to the United States from Cuba when they were teenagers. Mr. Dominguez lives in Saverna Park with his wife and two sons. We'll take your call for Juan Dominguez a little bit later in the program. He joins me here in Studio A. If you'd like to drop us an email, our address midday at WIPR. Org. Mr. Dominguez, nice to meet you. It's great to meet you, Tom, and thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for being here. So uh, folks in uh, in the Baltimore metropolitan region may not know you. You're a newcomer to politics uh, in this neck of the woods. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Sure. So it's, uh, we were talking uh, before we came on the air. I grew up in Bergen County, New Jersey. So uh, uh was born in Manhattan, lived in the Bronx for five years, and then we moved to the country, uh, which was Bergen County at the time, a little town called Bogota. Uh, B-O-G-O-T-A, 8,000 people. And uh, you were born in Teaneck, right? Yeah, I was, right next door. Yep, yeah, yep. So small world. Um, and, you know, growing up, it was a very idyllic place to grow up. It was kind of like small town America, 8,000 people. Everyone knew each other. And uh, I still have lifelong friends there. And uh, it was really kind of some bedrock foundational things were taught to me there that I carry with me still today. Mm, then you ended up going to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point uh, and serving in the Army. Uh, what led you to uh, service uh, in the service? You know, uh, that's a long story. I'll give you the short version. The short version was my dad thought it would be a great idea to go to West Point because his uh, boss's son was there. And uh, the first thing he told me that was That's not... a great reason to go to college <laughs> somewhere. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> and, and, and the first thing he told me, which wasn't really true, was that uh, he loved being there his freshman year. No one loves going to West Point their freshman year. But um, I got in. Uh, and they, you both have to be accepted by the school and nominated by your congressperson. So that was a early first touch at what some Congress people do, which is uh, give um, appointments to the military academy. I was accepted. I was nominated. And uh, the rest is history. But it was a great four years of learning how to put other people first and your country first. Um, and, uh, you know, it set me up for a lifetime of service to uh, to the nation and to my community. You know, a lot of folks uh, in the military uh, do uh, are drawn to politics. I mean, we have a number of veterans uh, in the House of Representatives now. Our governor, uh, Governor Moore, is a veteran, and he talks uh, very lovingly about his time in the armed forces, his time and what he learned there, uh, as, as do others. Um, what do you think the parallels are between, you know, military leadership? You led a battalion in the Gulf War. Um, what, what are the parallels between that kind of, 
you know, literally life and death battle leadership and leadership in the political arena of the House of Representatives. Sure. So I led actually a, a combat platoon uh, during uh, Desert Storm. The parallels, I think, are this. In the military, you don't get to pick and choose who your teammates are, right? You're put together with people from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, from different ethnic backgrounds, from different ways of life, rural America, city America. And you all have to come together for a very important cause, which is being able to accomplish missions on the battlefield that um, are going to not only protect our country, but saving the lives or protecting the lives of the person to your left and your right. And you can't, uh, politics certainly uh, can't divide you in a place like that. So I like to think that I can bring that same skill set to politics, right? We have a, we're at a very divisive time in our country where the left and the right yell at each other, and you're not going to get the important work of the people done. So I plan to speak to the opposition if I'm fortunate enough to be elected, find common ground, and put the uh, put the challenge on that side of the table and bring the, uh, quote, the other party on this side of the table and figure out how we attack these challenges. And, of course, that's much easier said than done. It is. You know, because this the bifurcation uh, of politics right now is perhaps you know, not been this acute since maybe the Civil War. I mean, it's just a, it's a very difficult and, and seemingly intractable uh, situation. We've got 85% of Americans polled say they disapprove of the job that Congress is doing. Uh, only 15% approve. So what is the what is the appeal, first of all? I mean, here you had a very successful career in business. You're a tech guy. You work for Comcast and this other broadband provider. You've quit all that. Uh, you're, you're making that financial sacrifice to uh, to run for, for office. What What about it makes you want to do this? You know, I'm going to thank my wife, uh, Cheyenne, and my children uh, because it is it is a financial sacrifice, right? We're living off our savings, and we're fortunate enough that we can because we believe in the cause. Um, and the thought of going from a somewhat well-liked person in my community to a very unpopular person if elected is, is uh, a little bit humbling. But the reason for running and I'm, I'm speaking for myself, is I believe that we have a lot of challenges in this country. And my only agenda is to attack those challenges for the benefits of our families, our children, our grandchildren, uh, because we're at a time in our democracy, as you mentioned, that good people need to step up and perhaps leave the lives that they've been leading uh, in order to make that sacrifice for my district, our state, and, and our and our country. Juan Dominguez is my guest. He is a candidate in the third district Democratic primary for the House of Representatives. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Our email address midday at WIPR.org. What do you attribute the cynicism about government to? Um, you talk about, you know, the need for good people to step up and do it. Is is our problem in the House of Representatives or the Senate bad people? Um, I mean, why is it that so many people are so cynical about politics? They don't trust politicians. And some of the politicians who are trusted uh, look to the other side to be the least trustworthy people on the face of the planet. I mean, Mr. Trump uh, has overwhelming support in the Republican Party. And by the way, folks, if you haven't heard the news, uh, his claim that he was uh, immune from prosecution because he was 
the president at the time of the January 6th uh, insurrection was turned down by the three-member appeal court. It's going to get appealed again. It'll end up in the Supreme Court eventually. But um, that just happened today, this morning. But but to what do you attribute the the, the intensity of the cynicism and pessimism about government? So I think a lot of it is well-placed. I'll, I'll say that the root cause of it is uh, the cable broadcast companies and the 24-7 news cycle, that they need to sell advertising, and the way they do that is to pit the loudest voice on the left against the loudest voice on the right, throw some red meat in the middle, and, and let people tune in, right, uh, as opposed to focusing on what our challenges and potential solutions are. That used to be the role of media. Now there, there are still people that do that, and I commend them for that. You know, you can't blame people in my district, in our state, in our country for looking at Washington and just shaking their head. There are way too many elected officials who are self-serving, who don't believe in term limits, who go there to die um, and um, and that have run out of fresh ideas, you know, 12 years into their time in office. And to those people that think that way, that government is no longer serving them. I would say look to people like me because at 57 years old, I'm not doing this to springboard my political candidacy and to run for president or anything like that. I'm doing this for them and, again, for their families. And I think that we need more people going to Congress to protect our freedoms, to defend our democracy, and to do what's right for the people as opposed to do what's right for themselves. Do you think there should be term limits? And uh, are you, uh, if you're elected, would you uh, adhere to a particular limit? I would sign up uh, for term limits today. In fact, I'll do it right now. I would say in Congress, uh, six terms, which are two-year terms, 12 years, that should be plenty of time to serve the people in your district. And what it's become is a stepping stone. The longer I'm there, the more committees I'll get and the more appropriation and the more power and the more um, that I'll be able to take care of special interest. I think two terms in the Senate are more than sufficient. And I don't think you should be able to start a new term uh, if you're going once you hit the age of 80. I think it's well past the time. Uh, there are many other industries where you shouldn't be able to uh, pursue elected office, just like you can't be a pilot, a doctor, some of these other things at that age. So term limits and age limits yes. to service in, in the, the legislature. Um, of course, uh, like any profession, and politics is a profession, you know, uh, on, on, for the most part, um, experience helps. Um, you know, uh, you wouldn't hire somebody in the in the broadband business who've never never worked in broad. You wouldn't hire me. You know, I've never. I don't. I don't. I can barely spell broadband. You know, right? Because I don't know anything about it. So, <laughs> you know, what about the fact that if you're in Congress for 12 years, or 16, or 20, or 25, you really get to know how Capitol Hill works. You really do get to know the inner workings, the nuances, and how to move things forward. You have a better sense of how to do that uh, if you are experienced as opposed to if you are a newbie. You know, you bring up a great point, except for the fact that we are trillions of dollars in debt, and and by all accounts, uh, things are not working as they should be. So if that's experience, I'd say let some folks without that experience uh, try uh, their hand at, at government. And it brings up that point of 
you don't need to be an elected official at other levels of government to work your way up for Congress. I think we need more people that are very involved in their community. I think we need more people like myself that have a business background. I think we need more people uh, that don't want to go and make this a career for life. It was never intended to be that. That's not the principles on which our country was founded. And yet that has become the way for a lot of 80-year-old-plus uh, elected officials that, um, you know, uh, when you have hearings on AI or Internet or the effects of social media on children, don't even really know what we're talking about. Um, this particular Congress has been the least productive Congress since before the Second World War. They voted 749 times this year and only 27 bills passed. So people have talked about they're not passing bills. Now, there are some folks who would say, that's a good thing. The fewer bills that Congress passes, the better off we are. That's a, a whole different cynical view of the universe. But, um, you know, today uh, the House is uh, going to take a vote to impeach uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Mr. Mayorkas. Um, and there are an awful lot of people who say, come on, folks, let's let's concentrate on what, let's keep your eye on the ball here, what, what really matters. Um, not that immigration doesn't matter, of course, but, you know, is this the way to do it? Um, the, what does is, what is a productive Congress mean for you? Sure. Uh, I would say the first thing with the uh, respect to the last issue that you brought up, uh, you know, impeachment is for high crimes and misdemeanors, not for policy differences. And that's... Um, that's that's point number one. Point number two is we have lost track of what's important in this country. And what's important in this country are working class people, middle class people, children, the amount of food insecurity that we have, the amount of housing insecurity that we have, the amount of people living at or below poverty that live paycheck to paycheck. It's shocking to me that the cable networks don't focus on that. That is what we need to focus on, not all of these other issues that uh, Congress seems to revel in. And I think people need to start demanding that we move the focus back to them, to providing living wages, to providing health care for all. I'm sure we'll talk about some of these issues moving forward, but we need to demand that as citizens, that our elected officials either focus on fixing the challenges that are ahead of us or vote them out. Uh, we have an email from Marge who says, when and why did you change parties? Uh, you were a Republican when you were elected to the Bogota uh, mm -hmm. town council, essentially. That was 30 years ago. A lot's changed in 30 years. Yep. But how have you changed in 30 years? The way I've changed, and Marge, thanks for the question, I've changed in that I understand that trickle-down economics do not work. I am all for a economic system where people can um, advance themselves and can do really great things. But what I'm not for is a system that has cut the tax base to such an extent that we can no longer afford to repair our infrastructure, that we can't afford to invest in our schools, that we can't afford to provide health care for all. Until we attack the real issue that Congress avoids like a plague because it's all the special interests that generally get them elected, is we need to focus on the top 1% in this country, and not as a punitive measure, but really as a way to recalibrate our economic system and uh, to tax them in the right way so that we can pay for all of the things that we desperately need. Two stats the last couple of days, Tom. One, 
the top three wealthiest Americans have more wealth than the bottom 50% of our citizens. And two, the top 1% now has more wealth than the next 60% of our, that is just unsustainable. It's morally wrong and it's morally reprehensible. That's what we need to focus on. So you switched parties prior to Mr. Trump uh, becoming yes. a Republican. When when did you do that? You and, know, and... I, I was a Republican. Um, I'm, I'll, I'll have the dates loosely correct here. Uh, probably until the late, uh, you know, 2009, 2010. And then I was unaffiliated or undeclared for many years. And then I became a Democrat probably in the last three years. All right. And we'll talk about policy yep. difference. We'll talk about issues on the other side of a quick break with Juan Dominguez. He's an Army veteran and businessman from Anne Arundel County. He is a candidate to fill the third district congressional seat, which will be vacated when Representative John Sarbanes retires next year. You can join our conversation with Juan Dominguez at 410-662-8780. You can send us an email, midday at WIPR.org. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station. Member supported 881 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up tomorrow, we will bring you live coverage of Governor Wes Moore's State of the State address to legislators in Annapolis. WIPR's Matt Bush and Rachel Bay will join me. Following the governor's remarks, we'll hear from the Republican uh, Senate Minority Leader, Stephen Hershey. And our live special coverage will begin at noon tomorrow here on 88.1. So that's coming up then. If you've just joined us today, we're continuing our series of conversations with the candidates with Juan Dominguez, who's running for Congress to represent the 3rd Congressional District. That district includes all of Howard County, parts of Anne Arundel and Carroll County as well. To join our conversation, 410-662-8780, our email midday at WIPR. Dot org. So, Mr. Dominguez, let's talk about health care. This is uh, one of the pillars of uh, what you're running on. You're calling for Medicare for all. This is something that we've talked about in other cycles with other candidates. Um, there are more people taking advantage of Obamacare now than in any time since the plan was introduced back in, what, 2010. There are 40 percent fewer people without health, health insurance uh, now than a couple of years ago. Uh, we still spend a lot more on health insurance than other countries. Um, Medicare for all didn't go anywhere the last time. You're advocating for it now. Uh, do you think there's a, a chance that it would somehow be resurrected? Yes, I think there is a chance, Tom, and and what we need to do as a government and as a society, as a people, is to educate everyone uh, more about it. I think some people look at health care for all as uh, something for poor people that they're going to have to pay for. But really, when you look at it, it is a benefit for 99% of people. And the reason why is, think of how much those of us that have health care pay for it now. It's probably three, $400 out of pocket. Plus, you've got uh, coinsurance, deductibles, things of that nature. It adds up. It's probably $6,000 a year, even for good health care. 
Um, imagine if you didn't have to pay that, if it was all taken care of through the tax base, particularly through a wealth tax. Um, and then the second part of that equation is we have to find ways to work with corporations to bring down the cost of health care. Right now, you have all of these different insurance pools. You have a VA insurance pool. You have a private. You have government. And everyone pays different things in all of those different pools. If you could equalize the risk factor without going down a rabbit's hole of uh, jargon, it can make health care much more affordable for every American. I mean, I'm a great case study right now uh, because we walked away from our jobs we had to get cobra and cobra is for a family of three twenty six twenty seven hundred dollars a month that is a big chunk of change that comes out of someone's savings just to pay for basic health care when uh, Barack Obama uh, needed to tackle health care early in his first term he you know threw all the eggs in that basket people criticized him at the time for you know concentrating so uh, acutely on health care, but he made a, a fundamental policy decision that he wasn't going to abandon employer-based health insurance. That was really, he decided that the Medicare for all, that, you know, government health insurance wasn't a viable option. Uh, it wasn't viable because it was politically, uh, you know, it was, he wasn't going to get over the finish line. And there are a number of uh, union workers who were very happy to have the employer-based uh, health care. So um, what's changed, you know, since 2010? Uh, and, and, and what what is the, the, the practical, feasible possibility uh, of this argument actually, you know, uh, asserting itself again in Congress? Sure. I think the economic landscape continues to get worse and worse for working class uh, people, for middle class people, for folks uh, that are at, at or below the poverty rate. That's what continues to get worse particularly in this day of high inflation, the cost of everything continues to go up. I think people see the writing on the wall that uh, if we could share this cost across everybody, that ultimately they're going to benefit. Think of the billions of dollars we would save if everyone had preventative health care and we could attack problems before they got to the stage where someone uh, ends up in the emergency room. Think of uh, women of color that the first time sometimes they may see a doctor when they're pregnant is in the delivery room. I mean, these are basic human dignity. And I view healthcare as a basic human right. And we've got to do a better job of promoting that, selling that, marketing that to people. And I think 60 to 70 percent of Americans easily 60 to 70 percent of the people in my district would understand that this is the right way to go, that it would benefit everybody and those that are on the fence even more. The other thing that's changed is that there's a lot more support for the ACA, for Obamacare now than there was when it first came out. There was, you know, very, very uh, strident uh, opposition to it among Republicans. They voted how many times to repeal it? Uh, and finally, that effort failed, and we don't hear about repealing Obamacare so much anymore. Uh, 52 percent uh, of America, Americans, according to Pew, now are are satisfied with the ACA. That certainly wasn't the case in 2014, 2018. Um, unions oppose it, et cetera, uh, oppose Medicare for all. Again, so, um, you know, the, has the tide turned? Uh, and, and is it time to, to sort of acknowledge that, you know, Obama's solution uh, seems to be the one that people are pretty happy with? You know what? Um, 
Absolutely. The tide has turned and we're more and more moving in that direction, Tom. And I think over the next few years, people will understand that uh, at the end of the day, the way to take the burden off of those on the edge, the way to take the burden off of small businesses. I just came from a Anne Arundel County multi-chamber networking event, and the amount of small businesses that say it's really hard for me com- to compete because I can't offer health care to my workers, right? It's, f- it's hard for me to find workers. Imagine if that was taken off the table. And then ultimately, it empowers people. A lot of people stay in their job because they're scared of moving because they're going to lose their benefits. And think of the ability to move amongst jobs, particularly if you're unhappy with your current job because you don't have to worry about health care. Um, I mean, I think that creates a positive landscape for everybody. And you're seeing the data move more and more in that direction. Juan Dominguez is running for uh, Congress in the Democratic primary to succeed John Sarbanes in the 3rd Congressional District. The primary is the 14th of May. Mr. Dominguez is with us today here in Studio A. And if you'd like to join us, our number 410-662-8780, our email midday at WIPR.org. It is midday. I'm Tom Hall. It's part of our series of conversations with the candidates. Um, you mentioned a wealth tax. Uh, again, this is another idea that uh, people have adduced uh, over the years. Senator Van Hollen uh, proposed a, a millionaire's tax. Uh, what What is your um, notion of what a, a fair wealth tax should be? Yep. Um, I think we can start um, with a graduated process. Uh, people that have a net worth of $10 million or, or more, that's where it would start. And uh, we would tax uh, those folks less, and then we would tax the billionaires more. Uh, And at the end of the day, that revenue, um, if you provided a wealth tax, it could generate anywhere between $300 billion a year to a trillion dollars a year, depending on the size of the wealth tax. And you ask, well, what would those things pay for? You know, universal child allowance, universal daycare, free public education, paid family leave. These are all things that the vast majority of Americans are asking for. And we could pay for these things with a wealth tax. I'll give you just a couple of... And let me just so I understand, is the tax on assets that are already, you know, in the bank or is it on income that people are making, you know, on a... A bi-monthly basis. Unfortunately, you'll never pass an income tax uh, change based on the divided uh, uh, Congress. However, you can pass a wealth tax, and the American Bar Association has said that it is constitutional um, when you do budget reconciliation, and that would be the time to do it. So it would be on current assets, not on income. And uh, given the fact that there is such, uh, we have huge deficits, uh, which even Democrats have acknowledged, uh, and uh, you know there, there's been no history of, of any budging uh, on the on people in the Republican Party or people on the the right side of the aisle uh, to to tax anymore uh, because they see that that's they, they contend that that's anti-growth, et cetera. Um, what's again? What's the practical, plausible feasibility? I think that Republicans are going to have to come to grips that their constituents want a wealth tax as well. In fact, a wealth tax is supported by roughly sixty percent of Republican voters, seventy percent of independents, and eighty percent of Democrats. Because uh, people know that the last time that we had a vibrant middle class in our country was in the late 1970s when the tax code changed, the income tax code, where you had brackets as high as 90 percent. And I'm not saying we should go back to that. The, that tax but you're talking about 70 percent. 
at one point, I mean, I saw in some of your literature a seventy percent wealth tax. Is that no, that no, I, 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 I don't, I don't think. Um, we we could. I, I, I thought I thought I saw that in a press release or in. Uh, no, in no, I don't. I don't believe I I, I was pr- pr- proposing a seventy percent wealth tax. But uh, if you stay with me for a second, if you go back to the seventies, the highest marginal tax rate was ninety yeah. percent. That paid for better schools. That paid for um, uh, a vibrant middle class. That allowed people to um, have infrastructure and be able to afford a house. Today, with that tax structure eviscerated, basically it's left the middle class, you know, wondering, you know, how we're going to pay to make their lives better. And it is simply a recalibration of our economic system. And ultimately, uh, Jeff Bezos didn't make it, uh, didn't become a billionaire by himself. He became a billionaire with the help of hundreds, if not thousands of employees, all of the infrastructure and the technology and the things that went on around him. And, um, he should be happy to help pay uh, for these things to keep our society vibrant. And frankly, when we're able to do that, it's going to provide more economic growth when we lift the boats of people at or below the poverty rate. Do you think that there is a, a you know, a, a, a wave of uh, this this kind this this idea, this approach to income, uh, to revenue creation uh, for the government uh, on the way? I mean, do you do you, do you feel? That the I mean look look what happens with the Democratic Party in 2020 they had their their choice of having a progressive and Bernie Sanders uh, who would very much uh, embrace Medicare for all would very much embrace a wealth tax would very much uh, embrace uh, the kinds of ideas you're, you're talking about and Democrats said nope we're going to go with the the more moderate candidate in Joe Biden the the Democratic establishment <laughs> decided that that's the way they were going to go and the way the system is created. Um, unfortunately, sometimes leaves those that are closest to the people and want to do the most for the people on the outside. I think that's what happened. And it should be no surprise that um, that's why ultimately um, Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump is because the working class Democrat, working class people in larger and larger numbers every day feel that the Democratic Party has left them behind. And that's because of the special interests. And we need to go back and address and make policies that helps those people or we're going to continue to lose them to the Republican Party. Um, folks uh, sitting in your seat often tell me that it's the working class and veterans in particular that they want to uh, address the needs of. You are a veteran yourself, as we talked about earlier. You've been in combat, and we appreciate that service, to be sure. Uh, what is it that veterans aren't getting that they deserve that we should be doing better at? Now, Governor Moore has also concentrated a lot of his legislative efforts on veterans here in Maryland. But uh, what do you see the, as the particular needs uh, at the federal level level for veterans? I'll say that um, I'm a member of the, uh, the VA here in Maryland, and the care has gotten appreciably better throughout the years. And uh, so hats off to uh, uh, Anthony Woods, who runs the VA, and, and to Governor Moore pro- for providing the resources. Um, I would say mental health and landing people back into the workforce are the two biggest things that we need to fight uh, harder for our veterans on. Um, There is a stigma around uh, mental health and uh, PTSD and those types of things that we need to educate 
um, both veterans or veterans that are in the armed forces now and those that have left the service to get the help that they need. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength to address some of the challenges uh, that these folks have. Um, I also feel that we need to do a better job at helping our veterans land into the workforce. There are thousands, if not millions, of unfilled uh, trade and skilled labor jobs that apprentice programs and things of that nature uh, would be very helpful for those that want to go that route and helping them uh, readjust uh, to society. Because I could tell you as a uh, someone that saw combat, it is not easy to come back and just get back into your regular lifestyle. There are all sorts of... Um, societal challenges, being in large crowds, being in places with large noises, that we need to do a better job of caring for veterans, particularly when they transition out of the service. I think we could do a better job there. Let's talk about immigration, uh, which is obviously uh, top of mind for a lot of folks these days. We have Mr. Trump uh, encouraging, insisting, whatever verb you want to use, uh, that Mike Johnson uh, declare the Senate bill that they've been working on for months. Uh, dead on arrival in the House of Representatives. Um, I want to talk about the individual capacity of individual members of the House of Representatives in situations like this. So there's this bill coming. You know, the the wording has just been released, but even before the wording was released, everybody was against it uh, on the right uh, in the House of Representatives. What's your advice for Dutch Ruppersberger John Sarbanes, David Trone, none of whom are coming back to Congress. They literally have nothing to lose uh, in terms of the House of Representatives. Um, how should individual members of Congress in, on the Democratic side um, be um, strategic at this moment when we have yet another example of brazen politics uh, with the leading Republican candidate uh, wanting wanting to continue chaos at the border because it's better for his electoral chances. It's a, it's a shame that we're playing politics uh, with the border crisis, and it is a crisis. It's a shame because we are putting um, the Border Patrol and everyone that works uh, uh, on the border uh, in harm's way. Um, because every day that they're fighting um, to try to control that border and that they're under-resourced, just leads to the possibility of something bad happening, right? Uh, I think that the only way for Americans to fight for what's right is to take this up at the ballot box um, because it's it's blatant for everyone to see that we're playing politics with um, the communities that live uh, on the border. And the communities, you know, the, the border crisis has become everyone's issue. Look at the large cities where people are being bused to. So you can't you can no longer close your eyes to the fact that this is a an American problem, not a border state's problem. Um, there are progressives in the Democratic Party that oppose the bill that's coming from the Senate as well. They don't like the restrictions on asylum seekers, the, the tightening of uh, uh, criteria for claiming asylum. Uh, and there's some other things, uh, work permits for certain migrants and not for others. Um, what, what's your feeling about what you know about the bill so far. And again, mm -hmm. you know, the text has just been released. Um, not everybody's completely conversant with it. But but what, what's your feeling about this this particular bill, which the president uh, supports? Tom, I'm a, I'm a progressive, and I'm a progressive on economic uh, and social issues. But this is about 
controlling the security of our borders and uh, providing for legal immigration, which is the way the system was supposed to be. There's no other country in the world that has uncontrolled open borders. And so we have to balance the humanitarian aspect with resourcing uh, all of the agencies uh, in order to go through and evaluate these cases on a timely basis. I'll give you just a quick example. One is that there is a definition for asylum. It's direct threats to people's lives, right? It is not that the economic conditions or that the cartels have made things dangerous in my country. So as horrible as that is, you know, we we have a hard time affording the people that are here as U.S. citizens now, our poverty rate, our near poverty rate, our food insecurity. You know, let's focus on these American challenges and focusing on controlled legal immigration. That's what I would say to my progressive friends that say that everyone should be allowed into the country. At the end of the day, if you're coming through the border and your court case is three years from now, um, that is not sustainable, nor is it safe because they just do a quick uh, check, a security check, and then they release you. And if you're a bad, uh, if you're a bad actor, are you really going to go to your court case three years from now? Probably not. Juan Dominguez. He is running in the Democratic primary to succeed John Sarbanes in the 3rd Congressional District. We'll have more with Mr. Dominguez when this edition of Conversations with the Candidates continues after a quick break. Our number here, 410-662-8780. Our email, midday at wipr.org. I'm Tom Hall. We'll be right back. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. Representative John Sarbanes is one of about 46 members of Congress who have announced that they will retire at the end of their term. Each member of the House and Senate who's leaving is doing so for his or her own reasons, but frustration with the legislative process, which is frequently disrupted by extreme members in the majority caucus, is surely a contributing factor to the mass exodus. If you've just joined us today, it's another installment of our series of Conversations with the Candidates. My guest is Anne Arundel County businessman Juan Dominguez. He's running in the May 14th primary to become the Democratic nominee in the 3rd Congressional District, the seat currently held by Representative Sarbanes. Several members of the Maryland General Assembly have announced their intention to seek the nomination as well. That list includes Senator Sarah Elfrith of Anne Arundel County and Senator Charles Lamb of Howard County, Delegate Terry Hill from Howard, and Delegates Mark Chang and Mike Rogers of Anne Arundel County. Harry Dunn, a former Capitol Police officer, has also announced his candidacy along with at least eight others. So as much as Congress is derided in public opinion polls, there is no shortage of people who aspire to join its ranks. Juan Dominguez is with me today until the top of the hour. And to join our conversation, you can give us a buzz, 410-662-8780, or you can drop us an email, midday at wipr.org. One of the things about the immigration bill, uh, one of the, the the hands that was forced uh, is aid, foreign aid to Ukraine and Israel. 
Uh, and it seems that absent uh, the issue of aid to Ukraine and Israel, perhaps uh, they wouldn't have had the motivation they had uh, to have a bipartisan Senate agreement about immigration. Uh, where do you stand on the Israel-Hamas war and the support of Israel, which, you know, obviously Joe Biden uh, has, uh, you know, expressed his unwavering support, but um, there seem to be uh, more than a few areas of disagreement between how Israel is conducting the war and uh, the Biden administration. Where do you think we should be? Well, you know, you know I'm a veteran, and uh, veterans have seen the fog of war and the result of war firsthand, the sights, the sounds. You wouldn't wish those things on your worst enemy. And so I am a person that believes in peace and diplomacy first. With respect to Israel and Hamas, um, there are people and there are countries that would look to eliminate every Jew from the face of the earth. And so we have to stand strongly with Israel and make sure that they have the resources to defend themselves, particularly against uh, those who would do exactly what we just talked about. Should those resources come with conditions? Well, so now we get into the next part of it, right, which is why this is such a tricky subject. I think that um, ultimately, if the I go back to the Powell Doctrine, which is what former uh, or General Colin Powell, who is no longer with us, was a great leader. And one of the reasons why is he set objectives. And so if the objective of Prime Minister Netanyahu is to fight until Hamas is eliminated from the face of the earth, they're going to be fighting forever. So uh, we need to get the hostages back. We need to find a way to institute a ceasefire. And we need to find a way to have a two-state solution, because ultimately that's in the best interests of the Arab world and of Israel. Is finding that way, does that mean withholding aid from Israel until the Netanyahu government changes uh, its strategy in the execution of the war? I never feel that holding someone hostage is the best way to go. So I, I just think it's dialogue. I'm surprised that... Um, uh, the president and um, Prime Minister Netanyahu haven't met face-to-face uh, -face, uh, by now or more frequently to sit down and just hammer out a way to find a peaceful solution uh, for for this crisis that continues to grow uh, on a daily basis. In your view, is the Israeli response to the attack uh, on October 7th, the heinous and, and, and uh, just inhuman attacks by Hamas, has it been disproportionate? I don't believe it's been disproportionate. I believe that the time has come for us to find a peaceful solution to this issue. And as members of Congress, uh, what, what can that collective body do to move the peace process forward? You know, Ultimately, I think this is a cabinet and a president issue, and we just need to make it a issue that does not continue to linger. And we can talk about continuing to linger when we move to Ukraine, because now we are heading into the third year of that crisis. I heard Secretary Blinken talk about that the other day, that this third year is going to be the most important year. And again, there have been writings and reportings by the New York Times and others that if Putin was presented with a way to end this in a face-saving uh, fashion, that he might take us up on that. So ultimately, it's up to President Zelensky, Putin, and us to lead a trilateral negotiation to see if we can bring this resolution to an end, too, because um, that is 
the America that I grew up with, which was diplomacy first and force second. And it seems like now we get drawn into these matters, and only when we're in the middle of them do we think, well, how are we going to get ourselves out of it? Yeah, I think I agree, and I think a lot of folks agree. But do you have any particular ideas when it comes to Ukraine about what a trilateral agreement would be, what kinds of things Putin could be offered that would allow him to to leave uh, in some sort of face-saving way? You know, I think step one is people say that there has to be preconditions for a talk. I would say no preconditions. Let President Zelensky tell us and the Ukrainian people tell us what would be acceptable to them, right? Not what would be acceptable to us or the West. Should uh, the the immigration bill fail, uh, what do you think the, the fate of Ukraine aid and Israeli aid. Uh, people have also talked about uh, funds for China. There are concerns about that. Um, McConnell has talked about, you know, the minority leader in the Senate has talked about having, you know, standalone bills to fund Ukraine, fund Israel. Uh, how do you think the House is going to react to that? Tom, you know, I, f- I feel that there is a group of elected officials that feel that the best way to confuse the American public is to put a mishmash of all of this stuff together, right? I would say straight up and down votes, straight up and down votes on immigration, straight up and down vote on aid to Israel, straight up and down vote on continue aid to Ukraine. You know what? Let's keep it simple. Let's go on the record and stop the horse trading on these very significant and important issues that affect millions of people's lives. When it comes to domestic issues like worker pay, worker compensation, um, job creation, um, what's the role in uh, uh, the legislative process and and at the federal level, uh, the House and the Senate, in determining, for example, executive pay? There are proposals to uh, limit uh, or place criteria about what executives at some of these big corporations can make. Do you think that that's a, 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 an appropriate role for the legislators? You know what, Tom? I think it would be appropriate to put pay limits on uh, executive pay, uh, sports coaches' pay, and athletic, uh, 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 athletic uh, sports people's pay. You know, there are way too many people in this country that are suffering. And when is enough enough, right? And so uh, just a quick, a quick example. 50 years ago, and using today's dollars, the average worker made 30000 The average CEO made 600000 Today, using those same dollars, the average worker makes 30000 The average CEO's compensation is $10 million a year. It is completely out of whack. And um, we have an opportunity to increase the living wage for all Americans, starting with corporations. And uh, let's get away from maximizing shareholder profit and let's get back to taking care of our people and taking care of our customers. The money's there to pay people more than a poverty wage. But is it appropriate for the U.S. Congress to be involved with how much Lamar Jackson makes or, uh, you know? Great question. I don't think that uh, the government needs to get involved in that. I think the people need to demand that. And so ultimately, uh, the way you do that is if corporations won't do the right thing, people need to rise up and continue to unionize like you've seen uh, over the last couple of years, the power of the UAW and the power of other unions to get their fair share of the pie. I think that's what people need to start looking at at Starbucks at Amazon, at Microsoft, and all of these other large companies where they fail to pay a living wage. Uh, Patrick says on email, I'm a Republican. What are three specifics that you would like to work on in conjunction with the Maryland delegation if you were elected? 
in conjunction with the Maryland litigation. So it would be a wealth tax, finding out a way to um, create health care for all at the state and the federal level, and ultimately to find a way to make college debt-free and certainly more affordable for people that want to go to college, especially in state. All right. We're going to have to leave it there. Juan Dominguez is a businessman and Army veteran who is running in the Democratic primary in the 3rd Congressional District. That seat is currently held by Representative John Sarbanes, who is retiring. It's great to meet you, and we will see you out on the campaign trail. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's been a pleasure. You can hear all of our conversations with the candidates when you go to our website, wypr.org slash midday, and when you subscribe to our podcast. Next Monday, I will speak with Delegate Mike Rogers, who's also running for Congress in the 3rd District. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, we will bring you Governor Wes Moore's State of the State Address from the State House in Annapolis. WIPR News Director Matt Bush and our State House reporter Rachel Bay will join me for live coverage beginning at noon. Here and Now is coming up after news at the top of the hour, so stick around for that. I'm Tom Hall. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for subscribing to our podcast. Have a great day. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR.